Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is the Asian Madness Podcast. A podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Hi friends of the Asian Madness podcast, thanks for coming back again for another episode of Women Who Kill. Before that though, hopefully you're all sleeping enough and drinking enough water. Can't ever stop emphasizing that. Sometimes just hearing someone else mentioning drinking water makes one thirsty. So go grab your water, you dehydrated person. Today's case is something I came across by accident because apparently there are a lot of women murderers out there. Something different about this case, though, is the fact that not only is the perpetrator a woman, her victim, in this case, is also a woman. In the last few episodes, all the victims have been men, but women-on-women crime definitely happens more often than we think. So for one thing, I've mentioned that women and men tend to have different motivations when it comes to murder. An interesting article from ABC Australia noted, and I'm paraphrasing here, that women usually kill in the name of love and gain. So to break that down, the predominant reasons are out of love or financial gain. But what kind of love? Like, I love you so much I'm going to kill you? Or more like... I love you and need you to be mine, and if I can't have you, no one can. A few episodes ago, we saw how a jealous young woman tried to kill her lover because she felt that he wasn't completely hers, no matter what she did for him. She couldn't go around eliminating every single woman in his life, because that would be impossible. But what if you felt like there was only one person standing in your way, or that person was a source of your misery? In that case, would you choose to kill the one you love or your perceived competition? This is pretty much today's case, or at least the official version of it. And it involves two young women, our perpetrator, Giselle Duwag Esteban, and our victim, Michelle Lay. Let's begin. Starting with Michelle Lay, she was born on October 12, 1984, in San Diego, California. You can tell by her name that she is Vietnamese-American, and California is definitely a state with lots of Asian immigrants. According to history, many Vietnamese families ended up leaving Vietnam and immigrating to the U.S. during the Vietnam War. Times were obviously tough, and although moving to the U.S. was a good escape for many, it was not at all easy. 
Imagine uprooting your life and leaving behind everything suddenly, arriving in a new country, learning a new language, and adjusting to a new way of life. It's definitely doable for the sake of survival, but just saying, it couldn't have been easy. Many of the Vietnamese Americans that I know of from California generally have a large extended family circle and are pretty tight-knit. And it's nice they get to have support and can be there for one another. Michelle grew up in Rancho Peñasquitos, a suburban neighborhood in San Diego with her parents and her younger brother, Michael. Like many Asian immigrant families, they were extremely hardworking and focused heavily on their family ties. Although they were only two kids in a lay household, Michelle and Michael grew up with a ton of cousins around, so they never really lacked friends. Sounds like a great time, right? The terrible thing about life is that tragedy likes to strike anytime, anywhere, and to anyone. Sometime in the year 1996, Michelle's mother, who spent many years working as a nurse, was diagnosed with cancer. Although she went for her treatments and appointments, she ultimately died in late 1999, leaving behind her husband, son Lei, and her two children, both in their teen years at the time. Losing a parent is difficult, especially when you're still young and probably have trouble processing what this all means. After her death, Michelle's dad decided that it made more sense to live closer to family. It's not like they live that far apart, but you know, walking distance would be even better. The Lay family then packed up and left Mir Mesa, where Michelle's father's side of the family lived. In a sense, it was a bit of a distraction from her mother's death. She got to be around her other family members more often, which then gave her a chance to develop close relationships with her brother and her younger cousins, especially a cousin named Christine. Michelle stayed strong for her family's sake, and even at a young age, she had aspirations of becoming a nurse one day. Maybe it's a way for her to honor her mother, or maybe it's because she genuinely enjoyed taking care of others. Either way, she made that her goal. Before all that, though, Michelle attended Mount Carmel High School in San Diego, she had friends, she did regular teenage girl stuff, and was generally a well-adjusted teenager. She had a close circle of friends, and one of them was named Giselle Diwag Esteban. Giselle was also born in the year 1984, just a few months older than Michelle. She grew up in the San Diego area as well, and her family was of Filipino descent. It was said that the two girls were very different personality-wise, but you don't necessarily have to be very similar to become friends. While Michelle was said to have been more outgoing and popular, Giselle was viewed as more introverted and reserved. As kids, though, it is easy to make friends despite the differences. You go to the same school, know the same people, take the same classes, and they're both from Asian immigrant families. That might not sound like a big thing, but I can absolutely imagine a sense of camaraderie being formed from that. So while this appears to be an unlikely friendship, the two were said to be the best of friends. They went to the movies, hung out at each other's houses, all the typical things kids do together. They were so close that they both had decided to work and study towards becoming nurses. 
and they had plans to move to San Francisco together. That sounds fun, right? Moving to a new city with a close friend. You don't have to worry about being alone, and you have someone to share moments with. So around the year 2002, they graduated from high school, and while Michelle went on to attend San Jose State University, Giselle enrolled in San Francisco State University. Michelle, though, did not stay long at San Jose State University, as she ended up transferring to San Francisco State the following year, in 2003. Meaning, the two best friends are now back together again. Since Giselle had arrived at San Fran State before Michelle, she already had a chance to meet people and form a group of her own friends. And all she had to do was introduce Michelle to them. Everyone got along great. Everyone liked each other. But sometimes you have a new group of friends with mixed genders. Things can happen. By things, I mean hints of romance. One guy from the friend group, a man called Scott Marasigan, got along exceptionally well with Michelle. And you get it. Sometimes it's romantic, but sometimes it's just an illusion. You feel so comfortable with someone and you wonder, hmm... Should this be more than just friendship? Maybe, but not always. The two kind of ended up in a platonic situationship, or at least that's what sources indicated. It was said that they were never physical, but probably did go on a few dates and whatnot to get a feel as to how they felt about one another. I've heard about this kind of thing from many people, where they date for a week and end up realizing that, hmm, There's no romance, just really intense friendship. So just like that, Michelle and Scott called off whatever they were doing and returned to being friends. No one thought it was weird, and everyone continued to get along. Months later, though, Giselle and Scott began to develop feelings for each other. This was not the same as when Scott and Michelle tried things out, because a romantic connection was actually present. So understandably, Scott and Giselle became an official couple, and Michelle, being a good friend to both and with no lingering feelings for Scott, was immensely happy for them. They all continued to hang out together, doing double dates and group hangouts. While Michelle focused mostly on her schoolwork, Giselle and Scott got real busy behind closed doors, if you know what I mean. That eventually led to something else, a pregnancy. No idea if it was planned or not, but probably not as they were all still in school, so that would have been a bit of a conflict. Some might choose to terminate and focus on their current life, but not Giselle. She was excited. She loved her boyfriend and she felt like she was ready. Technically, you could do both, work or school, and be a mother. But that's not easy. So Giselle decided to pause her time at school and devote herself to being a mother. Her daughter, Isabel, was born in October of 2005. As you can imagine, friendships can change drastically when friends are not in the same stages of life. On one hand, you have Giselle, who's not only no longer a student, but is now a mother in a serious relationship. Then you have Michelle, who is still focusing on her schoolwork and also working part-time as an accountant. It's not that they don't like each other anymore. But life is just so different for them. Michelle was also said to have been seeing someone quite seriously at the time, so it makes sense that the two women started to drift apart. 
their priorities in life were no longer the same. And that's totally okay. I don't know how you guys might feel if you were in Giselle's shoes. The guy you're dating had a maybe platonic fling with your best friend prior to your relationship. Is that weird? Sure, it could be. It obviously depends on who you're asking. Whether you find it weird or not, it's something you have to take into consideration if you do decide to go down the dating route. If it really bothers you, you may need to make some choices. Do you continue the friendship? Do you talk about it with your friend and let it go? Or do you give up the guy because you're worried about or do you give up the guy because you're worried it might affect your friendship? Giselle may have considered it, but maybe not as much as she needed to. Despite her and Scott being a couple, she was unable to let go of her jealousy, her feelings of inadequacy when it came to Michelle and Scott's past. Sure, they may have never slept together, but does that mean there are no more feelings? Could Scott still be secretly in love with Michelle? Or could Michelle be secretly stringing Scott along? Or worse, were they seeing each other behind her back? It's easy for us sitting on the outside to be like, well, he's with you, isn't he? Doesn't that mean something? But perhaps if you were in Giselle's shoes, you might have similar thoughts. Feeling jealous occasionally is normal, and it's pretty confusing when it's towards your best friend. But if the emotions are constant and aggressive, it can only lead the relationship to destruction. And that's what happened to Giselle and Scott in 2008. They were no longer getting along, and sometimes relationships end perfectly normal. Once the couple broke up, Scott fought for custody, and in 2010, the court awarded him primary custody. The dynamics were kind of weird. The couple had broken up, but they shared a daughter. Giselle at this point had left school, but still living in the area because although she didn't have primary custody, she wanted to be close to her daughter and Scott. Another thing is that Giselle was still seemingly interested in Scott. They did attempt to work on their relationship previously, but there are some things you just cannot work past. Despite being broken up, Giselle was still extremely hung up on the fact that Scott and Michelle dated for a little bit, even began to blame Michelle for her breakup. Before the couple officially broke up, Giselle would constantly accuse Scott of being in love with her friend, and once that wasn't getting her anywhere, she began to redirect her anger towards Michelle. It's all Michelle's fault, her existence, the audacity to date Scott before she did, and how dare she continue to be friends with Scott. There must be something going on, and if not, there must be secret, lingering feelings. When Scott denied cheating on her, she would lash out and get violent. Giselle wasn't capable of letting things go. Giselle and Michelle's friendship had probably downgraded to acquaintances at this point. Giselle was busy with her daughter and hating Michelle, and Michelle was busy with her school and career. In a sense, I get that Giselle cannot control how she feels. Jealousy is a very scary thing. It can really cloud your judgment and your sense of logic. Although jealousy and intense emotions like that can be hard to regulate, what really matters is what you do with that feeling. Control it? Go get therapy? It's one thing to sit and be angry on your own, but an entirely different thing when you decide to act on it, because in all likeliness, it will not be a good choice. Giselle and Scott were in a weird place. They co-parented, 
They were not together, though they did spend some nights together, because I guess they were still familiar with each other. So what was going on with Michelle while Giselle was going through love, pregnancy, baby, breakup, and jealousy? Michelle had spent many years getting her bachelor's degree in San Francisco State. But to become a nurse, she needed to pursue a higher education in nursing school. In 2010, she applied and was accepted in Samuel Merritt University's Accelerated Bachelor of Science in Nursing, a school located in Oakland, California. Oakland is like 15 minutes away from downtown San Francisco, so again, still in the general neighborhood, so she did not have to leave anything behind to attend the school. Around this time, her younger brother Michael had also moved close to Michelle for school, and I believe her cousin Christine was either going to move or had moved to be closer to Michelle as well. In short, Michelle was thriving, living her life, pursuing her dreams and working shifts for clinical trials at Kaiser Permanente Hospital. Which then leads me to say, no one would have expected her life to go the way it did. Things were getting weird for both Michelle and Scott. Apparently Giselle had been acting stranger and stranger, as in more aggressive than before. She sent hostile text messages to both Scott and Michelle, which I believe would have ended any lingering thread of the friendship and relationship she had with them. I don't know if Michelle was aware of how much Giselle hated her or if she found it concerning at all. I can imagine thinking like, oh, as long as I ignore her long enough, it'll go away. Most of us probably can't imagine someone we were once close to committing any kind of crime, right? This bizarre behavior wasn't just reserved for Michelle either, because in Giselle's mind, Scott was also a traitor. Just days before Giselle would act on her jealousy, Scott went ahead and filed a temporary restraining order against his ex-lover because her behavior had been, quote-unquote, bizarre and threatening. I believe he did this mostly out of concern for their daughter. Maybe he was afraid she would hurt them or she would take his daughter and run away from him. It's not uncommon for parents without primary custody to fight the custody agreements illegally, as in kidnapping their own kid and fleeing. So Scott and Michelle both did what they felt was best, but none of that would be enough. They wouldn't know that, though, until it was too late. On Friday, May 27, 2011, Michelle was working a shift at the Kaiser Permanente Hospital in Hayward, California. She only had six months to go in her accelerated nursing program. All was going well till this day. Michelle was due to finish up her shift later that night and had plans to drive to Reno, Nevada for a long weekend trip. During her break while on shift, she told her supervisor and co-workers that she was going to her car to grab something. Totally normal stuff people do, except she never returned after going to her car. Her co-workers eventually realized she'd been gone for a little too long, and Michelle was too responsible and too much of a high achiever to just leave her responsibilities behind, especially with no notice. Later that night, close to 9 p.m., a security guard and Michelle's supervisor went out to the parking garage to check on her, but saw no sign of her or her car. This was clearly out of character, and probably not just in Michelle's case, but for most of us. Michelle had apparently only taken her car keys and her phone, 
leaving her bag and her wallet behind. This does not scream, I'm getting out of here for good. This kind of disappearance act was simply not something Michelle would have done. But something really strange happened. So, Michelle's SUV was not in the parking garage, but as the two were walking around looking, an SUV, believed to be Michelle, suddenly drove into the parking garage. That would have been a relief, except once the driver of the car noticed the two standing there looking over, the car slammed on its brakes and immediately reversed out of the parking lot. Unfortunately, it all happened too quickly, and it was too dark to see who was in the driver's seat. If it was Michelle, they weren't able to see if she was in distress. And if it wasn't her, well, that's even more concerning. The car immediately then sped off, leaving the supervisor and the security guard even more worried. Have you ever struggled with trying to do it all and be healthy at the same time? I have. I still am trying. It's a lot of pressure. Most of us here are adults, and aside from work, life, social commitments, we also have to stay healthy and eat a balanced diet. Who has the energy and time for that? You all know I hate cooking, and while it's okay to make simple recipes, there are even easier ways. Why stress yourself out when there's a solution for that? Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service, and they can help you get all your essential nutrition in, whether that's breakfast, lunch, dinner, or even snacks. This obviously will help you save time and help keep you on the path of health and wellness. Every week, you can choose from more than 35 freshly packed, dietitian-approved, not-frozen meals to support a healthy lifestyle. You can also choose your meals based on your preferences. Don't eat meat? Choose veggie or vegan. Trying to eat low carb? Get the keto plan. Or maybe you're looking to bulk up, then no problem, because Protein Plus has got your back. All you need to do is go on their website, choose your meals, get it delivered, and it'll be ready to eat in two minutes. This is a game changer. Because after a day of work, I'm always exhausted. But knowing I can get a meal in two minutes, sign me up. Head to factormeals.com Asian50 and use code Asian50 to get 50% off. That's code Asian50 at factormeals.com Asian50 to get 50% off. By now, people were starting to realize that something was really wrong. People started calling everyone who knew Michelle, which included some of her friends and family. They sent messages, called, but got nothing. The police were alerted of Michelle's disappearance, and they quickly jumped in to get the facts of the case. The following day on May 28th, police went ahead and interviewed Michelle's close friends and co-workers, hoping to understand her situation. Of course, the idea of Michelle taking off without telling anyone floated around, but to those that knew her, this was not something she would do. She was pretty type A. She was a planner and she made plans for everything. She wasn't picking up her phone and her car was gone. Why would someone like that just leave? 
Could it be because of stress from work or school? Her personal life? Her family had been notified at this point as well, and they all decided to make the drive up to Northern California to assist in finding Michelle. Michelle's cousin, Christine, and her younger brother, Michael, began printing and posting missing persons flyers all over San Francisco, citing a reward of $20,000 for any information. The amount was later on raised to $100,000, but no useful information was ever provided on her whereabouts. The Lay family also reached out to Team Amber, which is an advocacy group for missing persons. The name Team Amber comes from a case of a young missing teen, Amber Dubois. She went missing in the year 2009 while on her way to school, and her remains were found years later. She had been kidnapped and murdered. Amber's family then started a group to help find missing persons, and they've managed to assist others in their search for their loved ones. Michelle's SUV was found not long after around Ponderosa Court, only about half a mile away from the hospital. Why her car was there was a mystery, because it's not like she lived there or had friends who lived there. At first glance, nothing was out of the ordinary, no signs of anything terrible. While the police would have loved to bust the windows, they would need to get a search warrant to get into Michelle's car. They were also in the process of getting all the CCTV footage cameras in the parking garage. But these things take time. So in the meantime, let me tell you about another weird thing that happened. So the day after Michelle disappeared, everyone's phone started receiving messages from Michelle's phone. It ranged from, I just needed to get away. I needed to deal with something. I'm fine. I'm not missing. To, sorry, can't call. My phone's acting up and low battery because you are all blowing up my phone. This was not Michelle's normal behavior. But could she have experienced some sort of mental breakdown that's affecting her actions and thoughts? I mean, it's not impossible, but just highly unlikely. None of her family members received phone calls despite knowing that everyone was looking for her. Even the lead investigator in her case received a message saying something like, Hey, can't talk, but it's cool. The investigator, of course, wasn't going to let this be. So he was like, no, you gotta call me and come see me. After a bunch of messages were sent out from Michelle's phone, it suddenly went back into radio silence mode. Whatever that was, it made this case even more perplexing. So let's jump to the CCTV footage. Police finally received the camera footage, and after narrowing down the location and time, they were able to see extremely, terribly grainy footage of Michelle walking towards the parking garage. Unfortunately, the camera that captured the location of where her car was parked was not working. But at the very least, they had a precise timestamp of her whereabouts before she vanished. Unsurprisingly, blood was found in Michelle's car, and it was believed to belong to Michelle. Things were not looking great. At this point, this case kind of reminds me of the Canny Ong case, where she went to the mall restaurant with her family, then went to the parking garage to get her car, but instead was taken at knife point by a depraved man who later sexually assaulted her and killed her. Knowing this, it's hard not to believe that Michelle had already been killed. But what happened, really? And where was her body? As people were working hard on tracking down Michelle, police and detectives 
were calling in everyone that was involved in Michelle's life, asking them to come into the station for an interview. That meant all her exes, including Scott. Despite their efforts, everyone was super positive about their relationship with Michelle. Everyone seemed to love her, only had nice things to say about her. Until, that is, they got to Giselle, who was pregnant with her second child at this time. And no, I don't know who the father is. By this point, police had interviewed so many people that they had already heard the name Giselle multiple times, and they also had an idea that the two were no longer friends, and that something had gone down between the two. So of course, she was a person of interest. When the police approached Giselle to ask her about Michelle, her attitude was extremely odd, or rather, too honest. She basically sighed, asking, what about her? She seemed annoyed, impatient, and irate. The interview was extremely telling. When asked how she felt about Michelle, Giselle made no effort to hide her disdain. She said she wanted Michelle to stay away from her child. When prodded further, Giselle told the detectives about Michelle's past with her ex Scott and how the two had dated years ago in 2003 for one month. She also told them that she had found out that Michelle had told Scott in 2005 that she was pregnant but was going to get an abortion. It did not say that Scott was the father, and it very well could have been just a friend confiding in another friend. I can also imagine not wanting to tell Giselle because remember, Giselle had a baby in 2005. So at that time, she was either pregnant or had a newborn. It may have come off a bit insensitive, awkward, if she told her. What really angered Giselle was the fact that she was kept in the dark about this big secret, and the fact that Michelle told Scott, and not her, proved that it was 100% Scott's baby. I see where she's coming from, but also, if the two did have sex behind her back, doesn't that make Scott an equally terrible person? We see often where women hate on women in these situations, but the men that sleep around often get a pass. I don't understand why, but the term homewrecker is almost exclusively used for other women. Anyway, the interview progressed and Giselle was beginning to come up with random details that did not fit the entire picture. In other words, she was lying and contradicting herself. One minute she would say she was not in contact with Michelle, but the next she would admit to being at the hospital Michelle worked at on the night she disappeared. She claimed to not have talked to her, but also slipped up about having an argument with her. Well, which is it? Long story short, the police managed to piece together some other disturbing things about Giselle. If she was just hating on Michelle and keeping away from her, that would have been one thing. But turns out, Giselle had been actively stalking Michelle. Days prior to Michelle's disappearance, Giselle was said to have called the hospital Michelle worked at multiple times, sometimes inquiring about Michelle's personal information, sometimes impersonating Michelle trying to get her schedule. And at one point, she even made an appointment at the hospital in order to steal an ID badge, something that would help her gain access into the hospital. Despite knowing all this, they didn't have actual camera footage showing Giselle and Michelle together or Michelle being attacked because the most important camera in the parking garage was not working. At this point, Giselle became the prime suspect. 
Police got warrants to search her home, her internet search history, everything. What they found was even more shocking. Giselle had apparently done hundreds of online searches on Michelle Lay, which is quite obsessive. She also had search histories on how to secretly kill someone with poison and not leave behind any traces, how to break open locks, etc. I admit I might have some questionable search history words in Google, but this woman makes me look like a huge amateur. Moving on to her phone, Giselle, of course, had deleted any incriminating text messages, but the forensics team worked their tech magic and managed to retrieve some of them, probably also with the help of Scott, who was a recipient of some of these texts. There are lots, but here's a few that you really need to hear. February 10th, quote, I hope you find what you're looking for in someone as disgusting as her. I wish I had a kid with a better man, unquote. February 18th, quote, If you aren't sorry for anything you have done with that whore and are not willing to make things right for our daughter's sake, then no, I'm not sorry for the consequences your actions have brought on you both. You have dug your own graves, unquote. February 25th, quote, FYI, you pushed me into insanity with you putting whore before your own family. You should have loved Isabel and I more, but you love sex and attention more. Those two are exactly what you are going to get now. You reap what you sow, unquote. March 2nd, quote, and Michelle has dug her own grave by being a homewrecker and a whore. She won't be an issue for much longer, unquote. She had also sent group texts to both Michelle and Scott at one point, one of them reading, quote, If you were really anybody's friend, mine or Scott's, you would just fuck off and leave my family alone. But all you are is the whore who had nothing better to do and followed me to SF. That's all you will ever be, the whore who slept with other people's men and brothers because no one wanted you. You aren't my friend. You are always just a parasite. Unquote. And the last one sent to Scott, days after Michelle went missing. Quote, Where's Michelle? Unquote. I can't tell if the last one is said in a triumphant tone or an accusatory tone. What do you think? Oh, and one big piece of evidence. One of Giselle's shoes had traces of Michelle's blood on them. I mean... Need I say more? With all that gathered, it was pretty clear that Giselle had something to do with Michelle's disappearance. They had not been able to locate Michelle's body, but this was pretty damning. I won't call Giselle dumb, but she was definitely unwell. If you were seriously planning a coherent murder, would you really incriminate yourself like this? Maybe she wasn't thinking hard enough or ahead, but I'm sure glad she was not very good at planning. With all that evidence gathered, but without a body, Giselle was still charged for the kidnapping and murder of Michelle Lay on September 7, 2008. It's almost like the universe felt relieved and decided to cooperate with Lady Justice, because 10 days later, on September 17th, the same day the trial was set for Giselle, Michelle's badly decomposed body would be found by volunteer search groups around the dirt path in Pleasanton City about 16 miles from the city of Hayward. One of the volunteers also happened to be the mother of missing and murdered teen, Amber Dubois, who I mentioned earlier in this episode. 
There is a strange sense of comfort knowing that the mother of a murdered teen found the remains of a missing woman. It's a terrible series of incidents that should never have happened in the first place, but there is a sense of comfort there, if you know what I mean. The remains were officially confirmed to be those of Michelle Lay on September 19th. Long story short, everyone who testified indicated that Giselle hated Michelle a lot, and Scott was a crucial piece of this trial. Yes, he did date Michelle for a month back in college. No, he did not sleep with her, then or after. No, he was not cheating on Giselle. Yes, he was concerned and worried about Giselle's behavior. As for Giselle's defense team, her lawyer did not dispute that Giselle did indeed murder Michelle. That much was established and accepted by all parties. What she did try to argue is that it was not premeditated and that it was a crime of passion. Not premeditated? I don't know about that, really. She had hundreds of searches on Michelle, basically stalked her, and not to mention, Giselle threatened to get rid of her via text, multiple times. How can you argue against that? The jury was made up of six men and six women, and they spent about a week deliberating on the verdict. The verdict came back, and much to the relief of Michelle's friends and family, the verdict came back as guilty for first-degree murder. In other words, very much premeditated. At our sentencing hearing in December, Giselle was swiftly sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Regarding the verdict and sentencing, Michelle's brother said, quote, We were just hoping and praying the jury would make the right call. And this is it. We feel a tremendous burden has been lifted. Unquote. How do you feel about that? Seriously, this case is pretty insane. I know people go missing and murdered all the time. And while the outcome can be the same, the process and details can be so different. This was a crime committed by someone who was once super close to the victim. This was a crime brought on by intense jealousy. While I do believe it was premeditated at some point, I don't believe Giselle had thought the whole process out carefully only knowing that she wanted to get rid of Michelle by any means necessary. Two things stood out to me the most about this case. First was how she tried to pretend she was Michelle and sending out all those messages, thinking that Michelle's loved ones and the police would just be like, Oh, look, she texted. All good. Go home, everybody. Second, how she was so candid and forthcoming regarding her hatred towards Michelle, even when the police questioned her. You would think someone who killed someone would be like, Oh no, I loved her. She was the best. Please find out what happened to her. But nope. She was like, ugh, that whore. I mean, way to put a target on your own back. As for Michelle's family, they are obviously devastated by their loss, but at the same time, are glad that they were able to capture and put the monster behind bars. In a statement made by the family, Quote, We'd like to acknowledge the Class Kids Foundation, the Hayward Police Department, our legal team, D.A. Butch Ford, Aaron Osana, and Tai Nguyen, the Bay Area community, our friends and loved ones, and finally, the jurors, for not only helping us find Michelle, but bring justice to her cold, violent, and untimely death. Unquote. And finally, Michelle's father stated, quote, Michelle is resting in peace knowing that justice is done, unquote.
So there you have it. The murder of a young woman who definitely had a lot ahead of her. Brought on by intense jealousy, most of it unverified and unwarranted. Regardless of how you feel about Michelle and Scott's quote-unquote relationship, murder was not the answer. What exactly was murdering Michelle going to achieve? Clearly Giselle and Scott were no longer together as both had moved on, and Giselle even gave birth to her second baby while in custody. Was it just for a sense of revenge? A sense of satisfaction? And believe it or not, we are not as clever as we think we are. Getting away with murder was probably easier back in the olden days, but as you know, modern problems require modern solutions, meaning technology is hella advanced. With all that said, it's never worth the guilt, the outcome, and the heartbreak it brings to others. If you're interested in learning more details about this case, you can check out YouTube, as there are lots of segments done on her case, including a very deep dive from YouTuber Kimberleya. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode, and please stay safe. Be aware of those around you, and seeking help is always an option. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.